0: n-e-t-s-u-i-t-e dot com slash w-t-f <laughs> all right let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fucking ears what the fuck nicks what's happening i'm mark maron this is my podcast w-t-f welcome to it how's it going what's happening hey i florida people florida and south of florida and all over the south i hope uh i hope you're okay i'm recording this on sunday i know things are getting gnarly and shitty and bad i just hope uh, i hope you guys get through it i don't know what i can do or what i can say but my thoughts are with you and uh my mother's down there and i've been trying to text her i, I don't know where what exactly is happening but uh, I hope uh, I hope mom's okay. I hope you're okay, mommy. Uh, you know, I could probably do this on the phone. Today, on the show, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, they co-directed the new documentary, The Vietnam War, that premieres on PBS next Sunday, September 17th. It's, uh, I think it's like 10 parts. I've watched all of them. I'll get into that a little bit, because um, it definitely blew my fucking mind up. That is for sure. It is just awe inspiring this documentary guy yeah, you know he's done documentaries before that are mind blowing but this is this is nuanced in a way and the depth of it is pretty astounding so so that's coming up in, in shortly I did also want to mention that the release of Waiting for the Punch is upon us, folks. It's one month away, October 10th. So go pre-order your copy now at WTFPod.com or MarkMarinBook.com and upload your receipt on the pre-order page to get a book plate signed by me. I've been sitting there at the dining room table signing the book plates. That's what I've been doing. Again, also, I want to thank everybody for the... Tremendous reaction and response to my special. I'm proud of it. I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. I, I put a lifetime's worth of work and experience into that special on Netflix that you can watch now. Too real. If you haven't watched uh, my comedy special, too real on the, on the Netflix. So I, get, I guess for those of you who like to keep up with my life, I should um, I should tell you what's going on in my life. It's been a, a pretty uh, exciting weekend this last weekend. Uh, Sarah the painter uh, was part of a big opening downtown here at the uh, new Los Angeles Institute of Contemporary Art down there on Seventh Street across from the Greyhound Station. There's a beautiful new museum. That this is probably the first time ever, if not in decades or years, where anything across from the Greyhound Station is a good thing. Any, hey, I would imagine, anytime said, hey, meet me anywhere across from the Greyhound Station. It's not a good thing unless you're just being picked up. But, uh, but this is right across from the uh, bus station down there, and she's got a big uh, work on site there on the wall. She was up on the scissor lift painting this thing, man. It's a big thing. looks great. And the show, uh, the, there's another installation inside, and the show there uh, that's there is, is, is great. The space is great. So if you're in the L.A. area and you want to see a, a beautiful new space for the art, for art, go down to that L.A. Institute of Contemporary Art, but make sure you notice as you walk in to the left the astounding and magnificent uh, painting that is there on that wall. It's not just a painting. There's other elements involved, right? We're, you know, this is some, uh, some deep abstraction, folks. This is the big shit, the big work that Sarah the Painter does, so... So that we went to the opening of that, and uh, I I, uh, I enjoyed the museum, and I, I liked looking at the art people, and I and I met uh, artists. Not my world. Feel a little uh, a little intimidated by it all by by that. But right now I'm feeling a little intimidated by everything because I don't no longer have my buffer. I no longer have my nicotine and now the you know the gaping hole is just open. It's open and it wants to drag me into it. The weird kind of vulnerability and insecurity and second guessing that happens when you let go of the thing that protected you from yourself, at least mentally, that 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 thing, that wall that that you could feed between you and your fear oh oh this this warm blanket of nicotine over my heart and mind gone and and the caffeine is just tea caffeine which is nauseating and kind of just flat lines i mean it gives you a a nice perk a nice level a nice sort of uh hum but it doesn't give you the you know pow man my brain is turned inside out but i'm dealing all right so here's here's some exciting here's some exciting news I told you you know how much I love Randy Newman and I told you I wanted to hang out with Randy Newman it was awkward cuz I don't you know I always I don't do that I don't reach out but I reached out to uh, his manager and she put it in his ear well anyways I get an email a few days ago from her do I do I want to come to this benefit Randy's playing at a benefit for the Silver Lake Conservatory of Music and I'm like yeah that sounds great knew nothing about any of it but I knew I would get to see Randy Newman play at a small event, which I was very excited about, and maybe hang out with him a little bit. Great. I said, yes, Sarah and I would like to go, and uh, we're in. And then a day before the event, out of nowhere, I get a call from Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Now I'm not dropping names here. i d I've never I don't I've never talked to Flea other than when he was in here. I, I don't know what, what was happening. He asked me if I wanted to host that benefit. And then, then I looked it all up and put it all together. It's his conservatory. It's the thing he started to teach kids in the community and bring kids a musical education here in Silver Lake. And uh, and this was the benefit for the school. And it's Flea's thing. And he and I go. Oh, well, I'm going to be there anyways. He, he didn't know that, but I I was glad to help out for the kids and and be part of it. So I went to the thing. Which was great. The school is great. The Silverway Conservatory is, is a beautiful facility, and they do a great thing over there for for kids and music. But I get there, I'm sitting at Randy's table with Sarah and like uh, four of Randy's kids and their uh, significant others, and uh, Flea's there, and Owen Wilson is there, and I met Michael Keaton's son who came up to me and said that he liked my interview with his dad. It was all very, you know, it, it's just it's it's a whole other world, man. I'd never seen the Chili Peppers live. And so the, 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 act, the, the acts were, they did a chamber music thing with the kids and then I brought on the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And th- there was maybe 300 people at this thing. Maybe maybe four, maybe. It was an outside thing in a tent situation. Nicely done. And I brought them up I ne- and I said, this is exciting for me. I've never seen these guys perform live. I mean, to see them like, I was like two tables up from the stage and they were great. They fucking bring it. And then um, there was some things, uh, a little of this and that video, some other stuff. Then Randy goes up and just sits at that piano and does a half hour. Some of the best songs. He did Marie. He did Short People. He did Birmingham. He did Sail Away. He did You Can Leave Your Hat On. He did You've Got a Friend in Me. And then at the end, before his final number, he said, Mark Marin wanted me to play this song. And he played Guilty. Arguably the greatest song ever written right there in front of me. And I I cried a little bit as I do every time I hear that song. Really an amazing uh, experience for me all around to see him hang out with him and and watch him play those songs, those songs. He did political science and the new song Putin, uh, about Putin. Just great. And then Anderson Pack was the last act, who I didn't know. I had to do all this research on everybody. I didn't have to do anything. I did like five minutes up front and uh, did a couple of jokes that were probably a little too cynical uh, for the event. Threw John Mayer under the bus for no real reason. (laughs) Because one of the things you could get at the auction was a a guitar lesson with John Mayer. And I said, well, that, that could go either way, that experience, depending on how you... How you look at that guy for the hour you'll be spending with him? Got a big laugh in the room. Anyways, I did fuck up one thing. I brought up uh, Anderson Pack as Andrew Pack, and some guy yells at me, like, it's Anderson. And I'm like, oh, no, am I that old guy? Am I the old guy that can't get the you know musical sensations name right? But you've seen me do it on this show. I, I guess I am that guy. That was the one bit of embarrassment I experienced the entire night. It's Andrew Pack and the Free Nationals here. Andrew Pack, bring them up. How about that kid, Andrew? It was a great event. So, the Vietnam War, the documentary. Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, co-directors. It's going to bring you through the war. And look, I'll admit my ignorance, uh, blind sides, most of them. I knew the ro- that war was a disaster and wrong and changed a lot of things culturally, but I, and, and I have images of, of it in my head from when I was a kid, but I knew no, I really did not know the history of it. I really didn't. And, it, and the, the amazing thing about this documentary, you see our America become disenfranchised with the government, with the war effort, with where, you know, culture was going, with transparency, everything. It's the battle lines that were drawn then are the ones that are still polarizing this country now in a lot of ways. And the fascinating thing about this this documentary is you get the full backdrop to what happened to this country and to Vietnam, you know, during that war. From all angles, they talk to... American vets. They talk to American uh, military personnel. They talk to American officials from the time. They talk to vets from from all sides uh, in terms of how they feel about the post-war, you know, how they dealt with that war. They talk about the anti-war movement, about race in the war, about about uh, um, you know the dis, uh, the sort of disillusionment that happened over time, the strategies. But they also talk to the other side. They talk to the South Vietnamese. They talk to uh, South Vietnamese Army. They talk to North Vietnamese Army. They talk to uh, Viet Cong. Uh, and they balance it all out. So you really get both sides of this thing, which is really astounding. And it's, it's, it's really a, a masterpiece of documentary. It's, it's heartbreaking, and it's mind-blowing, and it's historically important, and it'll give a lot of things context in terms of what happened in America... To sort of the major shift from whatever the 50s was or whatever it pretended to be to where we are now and a lot of it hinges on Vietnam so it was a real honor to talk to uh, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick and I will share that conversation with you now the Vietnam War premieres on PBS next Sunday September 17th and lock in because it's certainly worth it so this is me Ken Burns and podcasts so how long okay let's let's mm. get let's get some backstory you guys have been working together for years yeah yes um, since 1989 and and in different capacities lynn you've you've done stuff with him
1: yeah, I started off the luckiest day of my life, probably was getting hired to be associate producer when Ken and his team were finishing the Civil War series. So they had a, they had basically almost locked the film, but they needed someone to help uh-huh. because somebody quit and sort of toward the end of the project. So I got to fill in for her. And I thought I was being hired for six months to help finish up this project,
0: and now it's a lifetime. And here
1: we are, yeah. So I Ken very generously gave me the opportunity to produce the baseball series. Oh yeah. And so that was our first real collaboration. And what, what
0: what's your background? What comes? How do you come to documentarian <laughs> or documentary work? You no,
1: know, I have no professional training. And yeah. Many of the, many of us have a little bit or none, but. Um, American studies in college and interested in history and photography and film.
0: That all works and together. Then so that, that, that sort of, that's the combination. That helps.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then learn by doing, you know, it's really an, been an apprenticeship actually to see how the um, work is done and then to figure out what you can bring to it. So yeah. over time, it's sort of evolved into... Um, co-directing and making these films together it's been amazing
0: it's sort of like it seems like it's a calling and and some sort of uh, there's a lot of social responsibility in it Mm. now in terms of like they're 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 important I mean that's the one thing about documentaries is that you're like when before whatever's happening now happened where I actually do a joke on stage now about documentaries you know just because you have an iPod and your cat is sick doesn't make
2: you an auteur (laughs) you know (laughs) it's sort of a Hail Mary pass for some people storytelling is a really complicated thing so even when we're making it there's no sense of the larger picture of it because it is so hard to tell a good story all of those people with iPhones become grist for our mill the people who take photographs become grist for our mill but you know it, 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 we concentrate so heavily on just the task at hand which is not only additive as you would assume making something is yeah. but it's subtractive because you're you're starting off with this huge big gigantic you know amount you know 20 times right. 40 times 50 right. times the amount of the finished product and you're trying to whittle away at it in some way
0: and but but at least with uh, like with some documentaries you know if it's a story about individuals or an event one event and what you're dealing with is e- the emotional components or the moral components that are, are supposed to be left as a cliffhanger at the end for you to be the decider uh, you know you usually it seems deal with you know large swaths of historical narrative yes. so you know you do have a beginning and an end I, you know we're going to talk about the Vietnam documentary and I don't want spoiler alert we we lost so <laughs> I don't want anyone to get weird about it but that, the thing about documentaries you, you can't Really get weird about it when it's a historical documentary.
2: That's right, and you can't. You you are absolutely are are governed by you know the 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 goalposts yeah. of, of the experience. But at the same time, history, which we think is fixed, is is really malleable, and it depends on what age you made it. So the Vietnam film, if we'd made it in 85, when America was in a recession, when Japan was ascended, Vietnam would be this, you know, ball and chain, this dark cloud hovering over us forever. If we would made it 10 years later, in 95, when we're the sole superpower, our economies, Vietnam would be important, but it wouldn't be some sort of big existential drag. And 10 years after that, in the Lee of 9-11, and Iraq and Afghanistan, new colors. So what happens is you want to realize the extent to which where you are now really influences how you see the kind of questions you ask and who's asking the questions so these are all involved and and it turns out that the past is pretty malleable and good history meaning that is to say the narrative distillation of what actually took place right. a storytelling In history, you want people to feel like you stick around because it might not turn out the way you know it did. So you go to the scene on Ford's theater. Maybe the gun will jam this time. Sure. You know, maybe he'll change his mind. Maybe he'll miss. Right. And you know it's not going (laughs) to happen. But the idea would be that you have been brought to this moment with the sense of not the inevitability that we know that time and history has told us. Took place, right? Well, and that that's would... a nice dissonance from what you think, which is you know a lot of my colleagues who are dealing with the contemporary sort of hot button issues, <laughs> which are evanescent and disappear after yeah. that is less important. Sort of see what we do is kind of convenient and and lucky because we do have the beginning, middle, and end. For us, it's not like that. And what you want is the inevitability of things to sort of be met by opening up moments with people and events and facts that then themselves give you a sense that the thing is happening now, that, you know, Faulkner said history is not was, but is. That would mean that you could feel like it was happening now. So in Vietnam, we want you to actually feel the Tet Offensive, not sort of reflect on it from the safe distance of, oh, I understood that it was militarily a defeat for the North and the Viet Cong, but in fact, it was a public relations disaster. We just want you to go, oh my God, make it stop.
0: Well, I did. You know, I'm 53 and, you know, I watched all of it and, you know, Mm -hmm. I had some very, to be honest, if I'm really going to cop to it uh, after watching it, I mean, I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I knew it was bad, right. And and I knew it defined culture, and I knew a lot of you know what I thought was cool when I was a very young kid. We I gravitated towards. So I'm born in '63. So by '69, I'm seeing things. By '72, you know, I'm, I want to dress like a hippie. Right. So like you know, innately, I knew where I was headed, <laughs> but I did not know the the history, and it was very visceral and very present. And I think the the idea of malleability of history is that. It, it it's all relative to perspective, that's right? Exactly, exactly correct. So you know what what I notice right away in this documentary is you all, you almost give equal time to to the North Vietnamese Army, the Viet Cong, the U.S. military, uh, the uh, South Vietnamese Army, the uh, the people that were uh, you know uh, uh, at an executive level within the government. Like it's very well balanced, and it was a little jarring initially to be like, well, that's one of them so you oh, so, have so, that moment well,
1: we're, we're glad that you've felt that way. That's probably the most um yeah. greatest compliment you can pay to us. Because A- that's what we started out to do was to feel what we hoped we could do was to shed light on this by looking at it from every possible angle we could collect.
0: And it was interesting and, how available and how yeah. how the people that you know were in the Viet Cong, how, how they had aged and and yeah. over time have you know acquired some sort of perspective and wisdom and survived and, and the way it played out was the way it played out. But these are
2: older people right. reflecting on something. But don't you like the fact though that the that the Viet Cong or the NVA regular soldiers sound a lot like our Marines oh, sure. and Army guys, and, the- and that the experience of war has both a uniqueness and a commonality. The terror must be the same. The The effects of that terror must ripple down, and certain societal pressures might make it easier to express or less easy to express for whatever psychologically positive way, but when when, when the Viet Cong guy looks through the bush and sees Americans crying over the dead and said, boy, they have the same humanity. I hadn't realized they have the same humanity as we Viet Gong. yeah that was a stunning moment I mean, we vietnamese i mean it's a stunning moment because and that's what it is what you want to do is create an atmosphere in which more than one truth can obtain because the way we live particularly today is to decide like good bad right it's binary one zero Red State, blue State. it's completely childish and there's nothing in life that suggests that things are so crystal clear and so what you want to create is an environment in which whatever preconception you come in maybe zero uh, honestly about Vietnam but it's there and you've got you know your background and you know what you think but you want that to be kind of neutralized by a combination of perspectives that some of which you don't subscribe to, but you realize that if you extend to them the courtesy of listening of your attention and it matches with other stuff, all of a sudden you're receptive to a bigger story. So as you see, we unpack the story of Vietnam and then we repack it, sort of hopefully liberating as it did us as we made it liberating us from the preconceptions hopefully liberating our audience from preconceptions
0: right and, and, and it definitely did and I was approaching it with a sort sort of uh, a certain amount of uh, shameful ignorance in the sense that we, we love that
1: there's no shame in that though because yeah. honestly no shame one, of the, one of the reasons why we set about to do this is because we think it's fair to say that Americans don't know much. Just as a country, we don't know much, and we don't talk about it in an informed way. And there's good reasons for that. Yeah. It was so traumatic and painful and sort of unsettling to our sense of who we are as a country that it's just hard to talk about. And people avoid talking about it and avoid teaching it and avoid... I mean, we're basically the same age, and I never studied the Vietnam War in school. Yeah, I
2: didn't and, know anything about I, you it. Know, but so, let me just interrupt you know. kids and yeah. just say, <laughs> you know, I'm 64. I lived through this. I, thought, I lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I thought I knew everything about the Vietnam War... And 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 day one for the next ten years was a kind of humbling, you know, of of what you didn't know. And and when you started this doc, when we started this doc, you ten years in the making. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've been working on it since actually a little bit longer at the end. We, Lynn and I made a film on World War II called The War, in which we had followed the entire Greatest Cataclysm through the experiences and eyes of people in four geographics. Right. You found, distributed those, you found those old dudes that yeah. could yeah. talk about it. And exactly. they were at the end of their life. And I think part of that was the sense of how lucky we were is that they were just going out the door and we didn't want them to go before they told the story. But it was also all of the 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 stuff that war churned up for us as it always does as it did before on the civil war uh, you know many years before that we just said we just i just turned to lynn at the end of 2006 i said we got to do vietnam and we this our film on world war ii wasn't out until the fall of 2007 but we've been kind of plowing towards that ever since not that we haven't done other films but this has been the gigantic mac truck rolling down our consciousness waking us up at night making oh, us ah. worry well, why, you
0: know, having lived through it, you know, what what was your life like then? Where were you? How so old was were in, you? In
2: 65? Uh, okay. In 65, I was 12. We were living in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My yeah. father was, uh, glad you picked, uh, 65. Uh, 65 is when Johnson ordered uh, ground troops on the ground, March of 65. I was 11, almost 12 the first one of the first teach-ins took place at the university of michigan uh it was uh one of the departments that was involved in it centrally was the anthropology department my father was an anthropologist in the film you see a guy speaking to the local channel 7 reporter and i spent a long time going i think that's one of my dad's colleagues and it turned out to be our best friends our family's best friends really? we the Wolf, <laughs> really? my father's colleague yeah. eric wolf a distinguished anthropologist yeah. we were on wellington court he was over on forest we could cut through one house and be there. You know, very important parts of my life I spent at the Wolf house and There he was. And I learned this just within the last few years of a ten-year project,
0: but when, but as a twelve-year-old, you don't really know the, the the full range. But so by seventy, you're seventeen. Yeah, and you I'm know, I'm worrying about getting drafted. Yeah,
2: and the world and the country's coming un- unhinged. Yeah, completely. And and Ann Arbor, we, you know, we had some stuff, some yeah. really heavy-duty stuff, and I still have the memory of a police baton at the back of my head and. I had hair down, you know. You had the whole
0: thing. You had brothers and
2: sisters? I had a younger brother, Rick, who's a documentary filmmaker, and uh, we were all trying to get through. My dad, my mom had died uh, uh, the month after the teach-in, and so the three of us were just trying to negotiate both the loss, but the 60s and being in ann arbor and uh music i mean when you're talking about all the cultural influences you know that vietnam spawned it also was in in turn influenced by those things and not just music that we think of but civil rights and and women's rights and environmental stuff all of that's sort of playing it was incredibly tumultuous incredibly exciting i can't think of a better place to be growing up was a small town with a big university Right and, and the one thing
0: I I realized when I was watching is that the timing is very interesting because the the sort of um uh loss of innocence exactly. that that the country experienced in in reaction to that war and how that reorganized american culture is exactly it's the same now it you is know the same. that it's it there's a moment where you think like it's almost like well Nixon's silent majority is now in charge. Yes. That's right. That's and, exactly, and and they've not they've always been there yeah. to been. one degree or another. That's right. And and the one thing that I found uh, sort of uh, e- encouraging and sort of uh, a, a dark way was that the the country really felt at that time the way you captured it, anyways, and it was visceral that it was coming unglued. Yes, yeah. that it felt like you know it was going to something was going to collapse.
2: Yes, and and you know we we. We felt that the seeds of the disunion that we experience today, the the rancor and the alienation and the and the polarization polarization that took place are the seeds were planted in Vietnam. Right. If, If we were to unspool all of this and just say, well, why don't we give you our spiel? What if we told you we had been working for 10 years about a film about mass demonstrations taking place all across the country, protesting the current administration that you had a White House obsessed with leaks in so much disarray, a president railing almost daily about the news media and their making up stories about asymmetrical warfare that the military can't really deal with it, a big document drop of classified material into the public sphere that's changing and destabilizing what we understand about stuff and accusations that a, uh, a political campaign reached out to a foreign power at the time of a national election to influence that election that that bit of business was like is that known
0: is that a well known no,
2: bit of business it's because not it's it's getting well known now but it is and and it is also i think beginning to change the sort of conventional wisdom about nixon too because we have really really certain uh, negative reactions about Nixon and really certain positive things that he did, and this upends it all. Well, I mean that moment
0: where 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 you have that uh, those those tapes of of Johnson talking to Dirksen and talking, talking to, to Nixon. Dirksen and then talking to Nixon treason. And- treason he says yes, is do it. treason but he made a choice not to bring attention to it yeah. because of political reasons yeah. and and what we're talking about uh, we're, we're, we're sort of not letting on uh is that you know nixon reached out to the south vietnamese government correct yes yeah. behind uh johnson's back who was then president um
1: this in the 1968 election was a very very close election yeah and johnson had um at the very last minute, gotten the South Vietnamese to agree to go to peace talks with the North Vietnamese. And this was, you know, the hope to Hubert Humphrey, who was a Democratic candidate, was quite embattled because the war was so unpopular. Yeah. And he had not really distanced himself from Johnson. And so at this moment, when there's a chance that there could be peace talks, Humphrey starts going up in the polls. Yeah. And it's a very tight election. Yeah. And, um, then a few days before the election, the South Vietnamese government say, we're not going to the peace talks. And, you know, why not? We're just, we're not going to go. And then Nixon ends up winning by a tiny, tiny margin.
2: Seven-tenth of one percent, right. 43.4 to 42.7. And remember, there's desperation on the Nixon campaign because when the Democratic convention is finished, he's got a just a seemingly insurmountable lead over Humphrey. And that just, and, and what the peace, the positive progress in the peace talks suggested was that Humphrey would overtake them. So there's all sorts of theories about why that Johnson didn't want to reveal the sources or that Humphrey himself said no, 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 I want to win legitimately not by calling a foul at this point. Lots of very interesting things but it's only now coming out. I mean w- when we first wrote our scene several years ago, yeah. we felt we were sort of a like a just a little bit ahead of stuff and that we were worried that maybe we would said too much but a couple of biographies have not only confirmed but gone ahead and said that it wasn't just the campaign, as we said, but Nixon himself who had initiated and and begun the the, the sort he of cut a deal. He
1: he you know he had his people suggest to the South Vietnamese that if he got elected he would be tougher on Hanoi and they would you know they would be supported more. The Democrats would, you know, sell them down the river, that kind of thing. And um, you know, who knows? But essentially they just said they're not going to go to the peace talks and they waited many, many weeks and then Many, many years afterwards, there were rumors about this, lots of rumors, but never really clear evidence until relatively recently. So it, it, as Ken was saying, we sort of had to modulate as, and that's kind of emblematic of the film that New Scholarship came out on many things as we've been working on it. For 10 know, years. Right, yeah. for so 10 years, new thing, so new you know, things not, come not out. Not four
2: regiments, three regiments of NVA right. coming down the trail that month. And we just wanted to get it right. I mean, we we well, open up the film and change it. Well, the, the, the
0: amazing thing was, is that in watching it, I'm like,
2: we're, we're going to
0: go through every battle. Just about <laughs> that. You know, you pick these. I, I imagine what were were, were important uh, conflicts or, or battles. But, you, you know, the ones that you picked and how you characterized them over the years, you know, really painted a, a picture of what warfare was like. You know, previous to the massive bombing, which was like this horrendous Hail Mary so pass. So w- what
2: you have is the opportunity, particularly in some early battles like at Bac and bin Jha, to sort of triangulate where you, you've got, I mean, most of the time the American experience with the enemy was, with the exception of big things like Tet and later you know, other stuff, were we're skirmishes, ambushes, and things like that, of the enemy's choosing. But in a few instances, we got a Viet Cong guy talking about the attack here, and he's on one side of the hedgerow that our Arvin guy and our Marine advisor are talking about. And that, to me, is if you're curious about warfare, and it is the worst thing human beings do, but lots of more stuff than just saying bad come out of it, it's it's exhilarating to have that kind of perspective on a on a particular moment yeah and that kind of
0: warfare which which really uh it, even with the the way guerrilla tactics work in iraq or afghanistan there's there has not been anything like vietnam well, and uh, right
1: yeah i mean one of the things that the the enemy was very adaptable. Yeah. So they learned pretty quickly how to fight this enormous army with the air power and the artillery that we had. They didn't have that. Well, they knew the
0: landscape, they were committed, they worked at all ages, there was a Uh a nationalistic uh, fervor
2: and responsibility. And it was a repressive communist regime that sort of, you know, you're going to go, it's just one thing. And so the, the, you know, the messiness of democracy, particularly a corrupt democracy, and a sort of heavy handed one, uh, that's that's lending aid, is that you've got lots of space for all sorts of different things and And also
0: the south vietnamese government i did not know was was perpetually corrupt and completely unstable almost at all times but you know when you start a project like this you you know obviously you know that you have the history and you're gonna have to do a bit about france and the occupation colonization and, and and all that business to sort of set the stage but you know where do you start You know, for any of the things you do, because you're not making a two-hour movie that you're going to tie up. You're like, you know, people have got to commit a nice
2: chunk of their life to this. Yeah, yeah, and and starting is the hardest hardest. When did you decide to to do this in 1967? To what, do Vietnam in 2006 when yeah. we were finishing our film on World War II, and then it, it you know, there's sort of setting the table and getting some funding to begin shooting and thinking and organizing and grant writing and all and that. And you got to see who's alive, right? That's, you got to see who's alive. That's who the first thing we do. And find out where the people are and follow the leads, both serendipitous and otherwise. Well, you're dead. very fortunate in that. What's his name? She is is alive.
1: Yes. yes, and he's he's quite frail now actually. That interview most of the interviews were shot in 2010, 11, 12. Oh. So we're very lucky that we got the interview with him when we did because he's got Parkinson's and he's really not so well at the moment. Oh,
0: but. that's too bad. And but. several
1: people have passed away. So when one of the first things we do is think, Okay, you know, the actuarial tables, if you're over eighty five, we need to find you right away.
0: Right. So and you had so to we, lay that out.
1: Right. So we found a guy the first interview we shot was a man who Uh, was in the OSS in um, World War II and went to Saigon in 1945 and sort of tried to understand what was happening after World War II ended. And he ended up going to Hanoi and meeting Ho Chi Minh. And he was in his late 80s. Wow. So he's actually still alive. Still alive. We we saw him a few uh, earlier this week. So we're very happy that George Wicks will be able to see the film when it comes out. But we really start with older people.
0: And you were able to tie it into that. It's fortunate because, you know, if you just had words and pictures... To, to attach this to, you know, American intelligence, World War II intelligence, right. you know, things that had predated, you know, our even presence there at all. Right. Exactly. You know, to, to sort of, like, incorporate it into
2: the... Well, the, you know, what we had and the first episode is called Déjà Vu because the French experience is so much... Uh, like what would happen to the Americans, that it also permitted us an opportunity to, as the French experience uh, sort of unfolded in the late 40s and early 50s, to sort of shoot ahead to a decade ahead or a decade and a half ahead to an American experience that mirrored precisely that, that represented the déjà vu. But that also had the extra added benefit of giving us all... Somebody to care about Americans that are going to then populate the rest of the nine episodes as we're doing the geopolitical. Well, those historical choices table were great. Thing.
0: Yeah, the the choice to use. Um, hold on, I want to make sure I get names right. John Musgrave. Yeah,
2: we knew you were going to say. And that.
0: and the the story of of Mogi Crocker. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know those two stories. Uh, in it, what was very the humility of hindsight with even the most hawkish people that you talked to was was profound that that it it was almost it seemed like there was a period of time and I think you talked about it and how this war is seen culturally and historically that you know once you talk to the guys who were involved in it and the women who were involved in it you know what you find is that you know it was horrible on both sides there was mutual respect and and that there's a shame to it all that had to be opened
1: that's very well said yeah I mean you know Over the accumulation of the 10 years of working on this film and trying to understand what happened, which was no small task for us and everyone that we worked with, you know, we went to the wall many times. So, you know, you see those 58,000 names and you think about every single family represented by one of those names. And what does that mean? And we only told a few of those stories in the film and that was enough. But then you go to Vietnam and you think about three million died And they have 300,000 missing and you know, it's exponentially more tragic for them than it is for us and it's not like there's a contest, but you begin to kind of accumulate the weight of loss and grief. And how people live with that and manage it. How societies live with it. How countries live with it. How families, individuals. And the
0: chaos. Because this wasn't right. really a territorial war. This was not, you no. know, we got that country.
2: We've held this line. No. So the, so Musgrave says that in our fifth episode is that war is real estate business. Meaning you take territory. And right. It says you do not like to get wounded a second time right. on a hill you've already taken. And that is... One of the aspects that makes the Vietnam for the American strategy such a disaster, and, and you know,
0: we're going we're falling back into history again. But the, the fact that they knew, you know, pretty pretty clearly that it was unwinnable in the mid '60s, it, it's just devastating information. It's and and, uh, and to and to to sort of concede. To the fact that,
2: that what we the only way to make it look like we're winning is to have a bigger
0: body count on their
2: side. Exactly. And even a decade before, to know that we had an intimate relationship with Ho Chi Minh and that it was the Cold War and its sort of Manichaean dynamic, as Hal Kushner says in the film, of just good and bad, that sort of places Ho Chi Minh, a sympathetic figure who declares independence, citing Thomas Jefferson, and is... Uh, in the proximity of OSS officers to send him over to the other guy, the bad side, and plows us inevitably towards this tragedy that first the French practice, do a dress rehearsal for us. It wasn't a dress rehearsal for them. It was real bad stuff. But their need for that territory was almost completely economic, no? Yes. It was. A, I mean, this is the difference between a proxy war fought over the larger ideologies in lieu of World War III, which I think everybody would agree would not be the, the, the pleasant alternative. China, Russia, America. Yeah, so you have yeah. the proxy war. So before, what the French are involved in is the desperation of holding on to a dead form, which is the colony, you yeah. know, the the fact that they'd gone in there for a whole bunch of reasons and added that sort of bullshit, you know, civilizing thing that we're going to bring our religion and our culture and all of this sort of stuff. And, of course, the Vietnamese, like all people say, look, we've got our own culture. It probably is longer than yours. And uh, we want to determine uh, who we are. And this was President Wilson as well as President Roosevelt's sort of desire. And you begin to feel, you know, just the tightening of an incredibly tragic there's no other word it's just a tragic noose that is tightened on all of this
0: how did you track down like you know when you make the list of people that you want to involve in this and to see if they're still alive how do you accumulate those names what are your sources obviously american journalists american soldiers you know some south vietnamese but you know when you get into the into the the weeds of you know who's alive in the vc who's alive from the Mm -hmm. the north vietnamese army you know I, i i imagine some of them are still in power to some degree yeah. or no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Well, um, I got to make many trips to Vietnam to try to figure all that out. Actually, could not really possible to do that from here. Uh-huh. Um, and we had a lot of help uh, with a wonderful Vietnamese producer that we worked with who was pretty well connected in military circles. Huh. And so we explained to him, for example, Ken was talking about a battle where we see from all sides. Um, We had found an an American Marine advisor and a South Vietnamese Marine who were in a battle. So we wanted to find a Viet Cong who was in that same battle. And he went to local veterans organizations and talked to people and found some people that he, you know. Wow. So he he did a lot of the legwork. His name is Ho Jang Hua. And our film would not be the film it is without his incredible legwork. And also even once, you know, I got to Vietnam, um, working closely with him to have him help explain to people who we were. They weren't too familiar with our work or public television or anything like that. So, you know, what is this film about? What are we looking for? Because um, in Vietnam, the ordinary soldiers don't normally have a voice like that. Right. So they don't get asked, "What was the war like for you? Did you ever see Americans? You know, what was who who was wounded? What happened to your family?" These are not questions that are normally discussed. They have sort of a pretty simplistic national narrative about the war, and And they don't. They put it behind them. They put it behind them. We won,
0: and that's that. Pretty
1: much it, right? So, you know. They were open to sharing their stories because I think they wanted their, I don't think I know, this is what they said, that they wanted their children and grandchildren to understand the truth of the war, how terrible it was, what they sacrificed, the actual nature of the sacrifice, not this sort of bloodless myth of the war. And so they really, you know, once we sat down with the camera and we had to have someone translate for us, obviously, to explain what we're asking, um, it was pretty interesting that they were as... Open to communicating not just to us, but to their own children and grandchildren, to their fellow citizens, to the American people, what this war really meant, and what they gave up and what they gained, and um,
0: and so many women involved. on Yes, the, on that the, was a revelation, right? That and, was a
1: political thing, I think, for them that women, it was a, you know a total war, yeah. a people's war. So right. everybody had to get involved, and children got involved, which is obviously for our soldiers very complicated. Yeah, because how can you tell who's a civilian and who's an enemy if well, children yeah, are looking for mines and all that kind of stuff? But There was a tremendous amount of pride in that, and young women sometimes took up arms. Usually they were scouts and kind of helping out. There was also a whole core of people. This we had, I mean, we didn't understand this at all. The Ho Chi Minh Trail is a character in the film. It's a character in the war. To keep that conduit open.
2: Yeah. And they let's had, let, remember, it's not a single road. It's not like you know uh, the one hundred and one. Yeah, it's like a braided thing that goes in many different directions. And and, and by the
0: cover of night, they're they're right. they're
2: bringing in
0: heavy artillery. Heavy right. artillery being moved in th- from Russia and China, right? Mm-hmm.
1: And we couldn't fly at night, so this is a huge tactical or strategic problem for our air force that we couldn't fly at night. So they knew that. So you know, this is the enemy isn't sitting there waiting to get bombed, and they sent. You know, loads and loads of trucks down there, and they had women repairing the bomb damage because during the day we would bomb, and they would have these you know, tens of thousands of teenagers, girls out there filling up the bomb craters until they get bombed again. It was an epic undertaking, and it's probably essential to how they won the war.
2: So we so we interview the pilot that's doing the bombing or the strafing, right. yeah. and uh, he comes to our editing room. It's a terrific episode he he's, He spent his entire career in the military and retired as the head of the air force general Merrill mcpeak and he had no idea we had already interviewed Ming quayy and and uh, nuet Ein, who were the two of the women that were down there yeah and it blew his mind because he had already stated <laughs> on film that he would have been proud to serve with these people and it just sort of set his military mindset and his perhaps and I don't mean this pejoratively, a kind of chauvinist male mindset about uh-huh. who the combatants are into a, uh, an amazing disconnection. And so that's what this war did. It just upended all of the various things that you think would happen. We dropped more bombs on the Laos portion of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which is this elaborate yeah. you know, labyrinth, than we dropped in Germany and Japan. M- much more.
0: And I, and, okay, so once you get your list of people and you start engaging in that. You know, right. It, I mean,
1: it's not really like we, we couldn't start out with a list. Not, really, right. But over time, like several years, two right. or three years, we gradually find one person, like Ken said, leads to another. And, and they're like, I know a so, guy. Yes, yep. and pretty you, much. You,
2: do, you interview uh, You know, a, a journalist. He said, you know who we should talk to is this guy. And then this guy says this guy. And you, you follow that trail. But here's the thing. i so like you doing to, journalism, really. Well, but I'd like to liberate you from sequential production. That mm-hmm. is to say, you begin here and you do this and you do this. You you, you research, you write. I'll, I'll you any shoot, liberation you can offer you, you shoot and you, and then you do post production yeah, and then you blah blah, blah. Right. we never stop researching and we never stop writing and we essentially never stop shooting either right. even though editing is the single largest component of our production thing so, so you
0: just get a, a, a you just so keep adding to the mound of
2: footage or, or and interview or and
0: subtracting, subtracting too
2: right. or saying later hey, though i mean yeah. you you're not
0: subtracting no, while you're but,
2: doing but it. but no we may be we may have found out that we've done an interview we, i mean we what halfway through editing, we met a woman who was born in Hanoi uh, or in the North, yeah. what was would become the North, had to flee because her father was a French... Uh, oh, she's in it woman, a lot. And my. she's in every episode, yeah. Zvongon on my Elliot. And she's an amazing story but we're sitting there her husband is one of the consultants she's one of the consultants and we're having a debriefing after an episode one and she starts talking and everything she says Lynn and I are furiously writing down and finally by the end of episode 10 we just said Lynn I said Lynn go get her let's, let's go let's go interview her f- right away and she and usually this doesn't work very well that when you're very late in an editing process it's very hard to integrate new voices but she went in like it was just she was mm. born to be in the film so if you think about it if you if you were to think ahead about or try how we organize this you might have assumed that that Mai was one of the first people we interviewed because she's so constant throughout the film. yeah. I don't. I
0: don't know if I had any real assumptions about like you, you know how you know, that it was a step by step process. It's and I, I appreciate being liber- liberated. But I don't know if I was thinking about that. But you know, I was a lot of productions
2: do that. They, sure. They, they research for a period right. of time out of which they write something, yeah. and then what comes down is like from Mount Sinai etched in stone, and that informs not only shooting but editing. Boom, done. We can't do that. That's so malleable. So so think of it as a kind of a Russian novel. So that is to say we are committed to telling a political military narrative, policy decisions, what's going on from the top. We're aided, of course, by the intimacy of the tapes that are there uh, to reveal uh, – unintentionally for them, the Johnson and the Nixon administration. We're also interested in the bottom-up experience of so-called ordinary people. So in the ra- just in the range of Americans, let's set aside all those Vietnamese that we have that right. represents all different strata of society as well. We've got, you know, protesters and resistors and draft dodgers and deserters and, I, and, and journalists and policy wonks and gold star families and military families and just Marines and army guys that we follow out of Roxbury and, or out of independent Missouri into the fray so we know where they went to high school we know what their folks did in World War II we know the dynamics of their lives and you've got skin in the game
0: yeah and also you you have what you were talking about earlier is that you, you know this is coming out of Civil rights legislation. Yep. It's the beginning of the women's movement. Anti-nuclear yeah, uh, proliferation
2: the, stuff from the 50s, late 40s, 50s yeah. is a is a big tributary that flows into the anti-war movement. And, and you have to integrate all that. All I mean, you stuff. have to deal with
0: racism in the military and, Feminism, how, and yep. how it leveled out. And you talked to that one nurse who was great, Joan... Uh, Fury. Fury. F- yeah, she yeah. was like tremendous. It's like unsung hero. You don't realize... Yeah. You know how how uh, a woman in that situation was feeling, or that they were necessarily in that situation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And and the, the 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 thing that 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 blew my mind, uh, among many other things, is just the that you could track. You know, once once the country, the politics of it, you know, culturally, and in the entire glossary for how to characterize. Progressives and liberals in the left was written at this time. Yes. You know, by that administration, exactly by Nixon right. and maybe a little bit of Johnson, but not yeah. much. And then also it makes you rethink Johnson.
2: You're always rethinking Johnson. Yeah. And I love that. I mean to me he's the most tragic figure in it because he's got this ambitious domestic agenda that it's yeah. you know, he wants to be a new FDR. And Vietnam, he doesn't know about foreign policy, and he keeps all of Kennedy's guys, and says, "I need you more than he needed you, perhaps." Yeah, yeah. And then he, you can hear in this, and you know the 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 domestic pro- program off camera shrinking. And so one of the projects that Lynn and I are 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 going to do in the future is to do the make those domestic programs on camera. So. Oh, really? Yeah, and do his presidency so that, so that the guns of Vietnam are getting louder and louder offstage and, and beginning to shrink the possibilities of this ambitious, second-only-to-FDR domestic agenda. One of, oh, sorry. Go one, ahead.
1: One of the things that you mentioned earlier about disillusionment, yeah. I think it struck us over and over again, and that is sort of the, the overall arc of the story, actually, is yeah. what our country went through and, you know— because of these tapes, yeah, you have this intimate access. Like we interviewed all these people, and they tell us their personal stories. We couldn't interview Johnson and Nixon if we had. I'm sure they wouldn't have told us such intimate things yeah. that you can hear on these tapes when they've put Johnson the, might have. He, he might have. I don't know. You know, <laughs> public <laughs> figures are always kind of like creating their own persona and all that, right? A little cagey. Yeah. So, yeah. and you know, he installed that tape recorder, and so did Nixon. But you sort of think they, they. I don't know if they really forgot it was on, or they just figured that it was never going to see the light of day. So you hear them at every time of day, in every mood, talking about the most important things of the world. Mm -hmm. And also, what did you have for breakfast, and how was your weekend, and kidding around with their staff, and kind of... Seemingly not taking things so seriously all the time because I'm sure that's the there's weight of a, the job, right? Well, there's a yeah. the,
0: part of that job having yeah. having talked to Obama and I just yeah. talked to Al Gore is that whether they they know it or not or whether it's innate, there there's a, a necessary detachment,
1: right? And you hear which is
2: it would seem which can be evil, seemingly. Indeed. But you also are a human being, and you, and and in the case of presidents, you're not there because you're a recluse. You're there because you're gregarious, and you know the name of the secretary, and you yeah. know your friends, and you want to know how you're they're politician. doing and you're a politician and <laughs> right. you, want to, you, you do all that stuff that politicians do it's it's i i think it's one of the most unusual thing it'll never happen again that we have these two presidents, the two most important presidents with regard to Vietnam, there, they should be just purely top-down policy stuff. And then Johnson told me, or then the president decided to do this. But we can hear the anguish early on in Johnson. We can hear the cold and calculating real politique that, that, that Nixon and, and Kissinger are, are, are practicing. You can you can hear these quotidian things that Lynn is describing, and what they do is they both humanize and they make no longer top-down, but just joining the whole flow of all the other people, bottom-up. And that's a really great place to have a president in.
0: Yeah, but they also from the, the, the bottom-up, the business of the voice of the uh, American people, yeah. uh, you know, collectively, you know, as the, the war became seemingly more and more futile... Yeah. and and heinous that the momentum of public outcry in the way that it, it it manifested itself was has never been seen since right and you know because of the internet i i think that that has neutered some of that but there's obviously a lot of people doing that now in relation to uh the healthcare uh, repeal,
2: but you know, oddly, a lot of them are the same people. Same people, right. no, no, since, And it's and it's their kids or their grandkids, and it's a pretty interesting continuum, you know. And you were speaking a little bit about if we could have interviewed Johnson, yeah. But we made a very conscious decision early on that we wouldn't interview folks. Like John, Mc- and we went to John McCain and John Kerry. One of the first meetings we had, yeah. and said, "Look, we need your help, but you're not. You're we're not going to interview you. You're going to be in it, and John McCain's yeah. in it, and John Kerry's in it. And we, you know, we we weren't going to interview Kissinger or Jane Fonda either because they've got reputations to sort of spin and we don't we don't we were not interested in wasting the time that spinning represents we wanted basically people that you could have had thanksgiving with telling you what it was like to climb that mountain or having incoming artillery and wondering you know whether you were ever going to out and telling your mom i'm not going to come home did I'm you talk die. to john mccain oh yeah yeah and how and how did he help uh just just i think in in I, I can't really say he uh, his his former chief of staff Mark Salter was one of our advisors and helped us understand his situation and helped us understand from a different perspective some of the things John Kerry, you know, we put his testimony before the uh-huh. Senate Foreign Relations sure. Committee is in and and John McCain we learned things about that McCain incident of of his capture uh, that goes beyond kind of what is just generally known about it and and that's important and and we Lynn and I had the opportunity recently uh, a few months ago to go to McCain you know ostensibly to have a few minutes to share stuff with him. And he actually stayed and watched m- twice as long uh, stuff and was incredibly emotionally engaged. Didn't want to see anything about him. Wanted to see the North Vietnamese stuff. Right. Wanted to understand <laughs> yeah, Wanted to understand that's that. That's and it was to his credit yeah. that he was so interested in some of the things like the exemptions that were granted to he, the he high party. He had no idea. Fish. Right, yeah. no. And I think that that's the wow. thing we found from a lot of, even the scholars who've worked, magnificently to expose new information over the intervening 42 years since the fall of Saigon, just know their little area. And so we were able to aggregate all of that new scholarship, bring in all of the testimony of veterans, try to integrate it, aggregate it into one place. And so we would find our veterans and our scholars saying, I had no idea about this. Well, and yeah, then they say, "Now, with regard to this, I think you should think about doing it this way because there's your thumb is on the scale here. Or there's too much emphasis." Oh on yeah, this. who are those or, people you know, that were giving you that kind of input? wonderful stuff? Historians from West Point and from the war well, colleges.
0: I'm sure that the idea that you're getting, both, you know, three sides of one conflict must have blown their minds. You know,
1: I think it, they kept saying it was really nice to hear that no one's ever told this story this way in a book, in a film, in a you know, in any form because of the access that we had to the Vietnamese and also the perspective of time and the tapes and all the different things we've been talking about and sitting in the screenings with our advisors, you know, they would sort of not just tell us to fix things, but they would have discussions among themselves because they came (laughs) at it from such different places. And so we would be sitting there sort of, it's one of our favorite things to do is listen to them argue about whether Westmoreland was right or wrong about this (laughs) particular thing or whether Johnson really (laughs) meant this when he said it or what was the impact of this decision or that decision. Uh You know, um, We learned a lot just listening to them argue with each other and um, trying to kind of find – we never try to find a middle ground because that's sort of banal and boring, but try to find the right answer.
2: And let me – what I wanted to just interject for a moment is this is the time for the commercial uh, for public broadcasting Yeah. because there is no other place that would have dedicated more than 10 years and the – Extraordinary resources in order to do this, so much so that there is not a single book or a, a film out of the marketplace that our scholars and our veterans are telling us that has happened. And it's not to toot our horn; it's just saying we are so grateful to have actually been able to spend our professional lives in an institution that would even permit the notion of this. And it's it just literally. I mean, people could say, "Oh, the marketplace will this." Well, when your house is on fire, you don't call the marketplace. Yeah. And in this case. The only place that would would put out this fire was public television. That's beautiful. It's great. now, who who were these advisors? So Ed Miller, who is at Dartmouth, uh, who is a fluent in Vietnamese, is uh-huh. a, a scholar, uh, Fred Logevall, who is a, a sort of, how would you describe? Presidential historian. A presidential historian who understood yeah. policy and could help us in the nuance. You know, everybody wants to say, well, you know, if Kennedy had lived, he wouldn't have gotten us into this. Well, you know, it's a really interesting dynamic that we don't have to didactically even raise in the film. We can yeah. just tell you what happens and what the handoff is and who the personnel are and what those personnel recommend to Johnson and what Johnson does he's he's a free agent here in a way so it it's it's it sort of renders sort of moot some of these tropes that we sort of discuss at the cocktail party what about should have what it could have and and that's it what happens is is that you find when we employed scholars who knew what happened and we were interested in saying what happened now, sounds like a whole other documentary well with with <laughs> with, with them come yeah. With them come yeah. arguments. Right. And uh, many of the other people that we didn't do, because it would have been unwieldy, have arguments. But arguments aren't the same thing as facts. So I'll give you a really good example. There uh-huh. is within the Vietnam debating society this thing that if if uh, Westmoreland had been fired earlier and Creighton Abrams, his deputy, had been advanced, we would have won the war. That is an argument. A woulda, right. coulda, shoulda thing. all All our job is... Is umpires calling balls and strikes were saying this is the point where he replaced Westmoreland and put in Abrams. Many people would think that Abrams would do something, but in fact, there was no real significant change. So it's either going to enrage those people or they're going to say, see, I told you if it would have been. I thought, but I think oh, you can look in the eyes of a French guy, yeah. you know, thirty years before, and go, "This isn't going to work out."
1: You know, one, very of the right the, one of the real privileges of this project was bringing some people from Vietnam who were scholars to yeah. come and watch the film. And there's a, a man that you meet in the film named Huy Duc, who's in. He's a scholar and a writer, and he has studied the war, and yeah. he has accessed information that no one else in America has. Yeah. And he came to screening and you know watched the film and try sort of helped us understand what was happening in Hanoi, what was happening on the ground in South Vietnam, what was the perspective of ordinary soldiers and of the leadership. And we couldn't have gotten that any other way. And whenever he spoke, everybody just listened. Yeah, we just shut it's up. Really and quite and something. another teacher who was yeah. not
2: fluent, it, it didn't speak English at all, but spoke a, a little French, actually a lot Nop. of French. Nguyen Winop, who was yeah. this beloved, he was a foot soldier, but became a kind of celebrated teacher and yeah. and, and historian in Vietnam. He came too, and, and it won't want the same thing. We'd already interviewed Huy Duc, but but we pushed him in front of our cameras again after he spoke up at these meetings. But when Winop came, we just went in and he's wonderful. I mean, he gives us this incredible thing about he's in the jungle and I've seen animals, wild, ferocious animals, and they don't kill unless they're hungry. Only human beings kill Oh,
0: that guy! Yeah,
2: that
1: yeah, guy. That guy is good. <sighs> yeah, yeah, that guy is really something. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, you guys. It was quite. Uh, the whole thing was. But, but you, you understand, very, understand what yeah. i saying? You're so <laughs> engaged.
2: But the process. See, if you if you aren't always doing all the things, rather than making it a sequential series of research, writing, shooting, editing, sure. Then you're not open to this. Then you can't say, look, let's open up the film and correct that thing that the scholar said, or let's film Win not right now and see how he can be interested. Integrated into the film
0: but, but but also the way you're talking about it and looking at some of your past work this seems like this film in particular was uh, a kind of a, a, a mind-blowing experience for you on this level because yeah. there there are films that you've done where you're dealing with you're spending a lot of time
2: zooming into still photographs and you know you do that here yeah no but but you got it you had a lot of footage, man. So this is was mind-blowing. And we've had footage in baseball. We've had footage in World War II. But <laughs> I wasn't the proce- taking a shot at no, you. No, no, no. no the, and I didn't think you were. The process is the same. But I, you hit the nail on the head, which is this was the most challenging and the most transforming for us. We don't recognize who we were, who went into this project, and who we are now. And a lot of it is just adhering to the same very time-consuming, but very necessary. We think ethical, honorable, artistic sort of process things that we've always done. Back to my first film, Brooklyn Bridge, through the Civil War, and all the other stuff. But then with this huge magilla of a subject in which we've had to triangulate from
0: every which And way. also one side was relatively unheard. Yes. And, and this is also, not unlike a lot of your other films, uh, uh, a film you know, ostensibly about
1: America. Well, you know... Right? From day one, we really said, yes, we want to understand the war. We are Americans, and it's an epically important, I think, you know, the most, we've been saying the most important event in American history since World War II. So as Americans, we need to understand it. Yeah. But as Americans, even if we only care about Americans, we cannot understand it if we don't understand the Vietnamese, what, what they did, who they were, who we were fighting with, who we were fighting against, what drove them you know, why we failed. It would be an exercise in futility and navel-gazing yeah. to just focus on ourselves once again. And, you know, we're, we're asked a lot about Hollywood movies and other representations of the war, and so rarely do Vietnamese have any voice at all. And sometimes when they're interviewed, they're even given a voiceover, so you don't even hear their voice. You you know, someone else speaks for them. Uh-huh. And we felt it was extraordinarily important to just listen, just ask the questions, find out, and, and then just be them. present, find them. And, find them. <laughs> and we also spoke to Vietnamese here in the U.S., because many you know, left the country after the war on the losing side, they've come here and become incredibly productive citizens. But they have this kind of loss of their country. Many of them had to leave everything behind, like many refugees, and, you know, embrace a new life. But they don't talk about the war because it's too painful. So their children don't know what their life was like, they don't know their what, you know, what happened to their parents before this tragedy befell them. And so, trying to excavate all of that felt like they're Americans too. By the way, yeah. So they're part of our story, and um, you know, at least if we've been able to get something from some understanding, deeper understanding of the American experience, it encompasses all of this.
0: Yeah, I, I found that what what became really fascinating to me too, like along was following you know John Musgrave's story yes. into the anti-war movement, and then you know realizing as public opinion shifted. And, and the, the morality, uh, not morale, which was also diminishing, yes. but the morality of, you know, what was necessary to, well, to survive over there started to slip. Th-
1: this this seems <laughs> to be the central question, really, what you're hitting on right now, which is, you know, if you're a citizen of this country, what do you do if our government is doing something that you don't think is right? Yeah. And if you're being lied to. And if we're going in the wrong direction, if you really believe that, are you supposed to just blindly obey? Are you supposed to question? Are you supposed to protest? Or, you know Wait if to vote. What do you do? Right. These are just profound questions. There's no easy answers. But John Musgrave's story is sort of you know, he embodies that entire um, transformation of anguished,
0: someone anguished anguished right. journey through through all of those questions and all yeah and trying to reconcile so, your own idea exactly. of what america is with the reality you just endure.
2: so t- traditionally filmmakers then impose their sort of lesson on it but we don't need to do that because we still want to honor the people who think that we should still be there but we also want to – we feel that John Musgrave's journey, uh, combined with several other journeys, are going to say it all, and nobody's ever going to answer this to anyone else's satisfaction. So what you want to do is raise these questions, sound these questions, and then permit the echo to, to take place within the viewers of it. I mean, because it's sponsored in you passions and ideas and thoughts about it that excite us today, that we're so thrilled that things that we did that we didn't want to call attention to and didn't have – even a didactic bone in our body to sort of say, "Isn't this so?" Like today, you can't you can't help but feel.
0: The, oh, absolutely! And because uh, I think those divides were like to me the, the the powerful thing was that the culture war and the the sort of uh, commitment to nationalism versus you know uh, truth. Uh, you know, was really um, that's when it exploded and defined itself.
2: So, so we focused on what was going on in all three capitals too. It isn't just all the array of people. So, the, you know, people in Hanoi weren't telling their folks everything, right? People in Saigon certainly weren't. Right. People in Washington, we've learned, weren't, and so that makes. For a very interesting story to tell, as those things leak out, I found it just as interesting to find out that the head of the of the big officials in 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 Hanoi could go off to Moscow and avoid the draft. You know, in a different episode, we're showing pictures of Bill Clinton in uh, you know in England and showing pictures of W uh, in in the Air Force Reserve, and this is all the privileges of wealth and position and political power that people take about. Or or in the case of Bill Clinton, brains. Yeah. You know, his, his brains got him out of i mean he's from rural arkansas and uh you know that would have put him right in that man's army but it it, you know his brains gave him a different dynamic yeah you i mean you definitely covered you know
0: everything (laughs) yeah but like i found you know towards the end when they were when nixon was sending them in and it was Mm -hmm. clearly futile that you know the 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 disposition of of the the people that were being drafted and sent at that time you, you know that you know i think that the one thing I go back to is that that scene in Apocalypse Now, where uh, where's the, who's your commanding orf- officer? Ain't you? You know that you know that there was that menace of you know questioning orders, not right. following orders, right. you know threatening, <coughs> you, you know commanding officers, you know, and then the idea that I don't know that you really got into. Uh, because I don't know what kind of information you would find there is about i don't know what they call it, but you know e- e- you know grunts taking out office
1: bragging, yeah. Yeah, we, bragging.
0: Did a, we did a yes. section on that right. and
2: and and you know it's it's always not with the Hollywood movies. Uh, portray it was very rarely in the field, mostly right. back at camp. Usually over race or drugs or insubordination, personality uh-huh. disagreements, and it comes from the, uh, the the fragmentation bombs that would be used, sort of tossed into a commander's bunker, uh, and uh, you relieved your problem that way. And it was significant enough that the army studied it and got deep in the weeds about. What was it doing? But by then, you know, we've got pictures of guys smoking dope in front of the the news cameras and, and guys saying, I've not fired my gun and I don't intend to fire my gun. And the heroin epidemic. And the heroin and the drug epidemic. And so, you know, as, some, as we quote someone quoting Abrams saying, I need to get this army home to save it, that's... That was a pretty real thing by the end of this where it's nearly all draft and it's nobody wants to be there and they already know this is unwinnable and they already know that the tide of public opinion if it hasn't completely turned is in the process of completely turning and, and they don't want to be the last person to die in Vietnam as John Kerry said. It's crazy. And, and I, I imagine you must have been amazed
0: at I was amazed at how much journalistic film footage Yeah,
2: Courage. Wow, yeah, they're you know, I hun- mean,
1: yeah, um, we were just sort of just horrified to discover several hundred journalists were killed during the war, trying to collect that footage. They were really. Up close and personal to what was happening. It's extremely dangerous. Oh, it felt and dangerous. I mean, it, that added a yeah. lot to
0: what you wanted to, yeah, the immersive experience right. to be. Yeah. Was that you're like, w- who is shooting this? We, yeah.
1: You find yourself asking yourself that all the time. Yeah. Right. And, you know, there are Vietnamese photographers. They're American. They're from all over the world. I mean, the greatest journalists in the world, like, in fact, we all went there. Yeah. And the access was unprecedented because the army, our military did not restrict where they could go so you could get a press pass and you could just hop on a helicopter and go anywhere you want, basically. Right. And, you know, their goal was to try to get somewhere where something was happening so that they could find some action or go out on a patrol or something. Um, and then in the Tet Offensive, when the action was actually happening in Saigon, that's where they were based. So they had enormous numbers of cameras following right the war as it was exploding around yeah. them.
0: Yeah. It's crazy. And it's the sti- pretty crazy. And the still photographs that, like, were drilled into my head, yeah. th- those
2: two of the the execution... Of Lem on the streets of Saigon during the Tet Offensive and by the, long, the head of the National... And the yeah. little girl running. Right. And I would... To which I would add the Kent State uh, Oh, woman oh hovering over the body, that those three iconic images, what happens is, is that we, as we always do in a media culture that is suffused with outlets but doesn't want to go deep, it wants to be superficial and, and conventional, is that we don't really explore. And in each one of those photographs, we... Yeah, you show we, the other shots. We and the... give you more of what happened, more of the story, so that it, at least, even even in a speech like Nixon's silent majority, usually it's just quoted, you, the great silent majority. It's out of context, this brilliant speech that turns the tide of public opinion in the favor of Nixon, right? I mean, that's just not said. Or hearing one line of of John Kerry, and we've got nearly the entire speech, or the entire testimony. Yeah,
0: it is fascinating about the American mind you know, what, you know, where it draws a line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I heard something on, on one of the shows. They were talking to McCain's, you know, one of his old Stephen, I forget his last name all the time, who worked with McCain uh, you Smith, know. Smith, I think. Steve Schmidt. Yeah, Schmidt. Sorry, I was That's close. it. I
2: was close. That he
0: said that, you know, when Nixon resigned, he had a 29% approval rate. Oh,
2: yeah. Um, no, no, no. No, it's. It, Which it's is not high, but it's Nixon not going was, anywhere.
1: We, I think we developed, at least I did, I think we all did great. Uh, appreciation for Nixon's political skills yeah you know it was I mean Houdini, I grew up,
2: Houdini skills yeah
1: yeah you know in Watergate he was so demonized if you were realizing that the government you know how corrupt what was happening was but watching going back into the beginning and seeing the speeches he gave his understanding of how the sort of excesses of the anti-war movement could be used to his advantage you know and um, the kind of language he used about law and order and peace with honor resonated sure. with people so powerfully he was brilliant and on top of that, you know, he and Kissinger came to the conclusion that Vietnam wasn't really that important to America anymore. And what was important was making peace with China and, you know, defusing tension with Russia. And that was actually gonna be their legacy. And they just wanted to sort of fix up this Vietnam problem and make it go away, essentially. We're playing
2: a larger game. Right. I said. And it's a China game and a Russia game, a Soviet Union game and a a reelection game. And this and is old yeah, this, is, all, the, this oh, is done. This is so, exhausted. Yeah, yes. it's
1: over. So you I, yeah. get what, you,
2: what you see is that from Truman on uh-huh. Eisenhower Kennedy Johnson Nixon even Ford um, they are making decisions about Vietnam that are influencing foreign policy and also military strategy i.e. lives lost yeah. based on domestic political you know considerations which means will i get reelected and that's happening now yeah.
0: All, yeah. the All, yeah. the All the time. That's All the time. That's the other thing is that some of this stuff never changes. And some people are always going to be like, why don't you shut up and listen to the president? Yes, yeah.
2: exactly. And, sure. and you know what? If and, and conversely, if we had tapes of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, we might be shocked at the at the sort of, you know, perhaps vulgarity of the conversations as you can hear in Johnson and, and and Nixon at times but also the you know the coldness of the real politique and and other times the anguish and the and the, the lack i mean what to me is stunning is to hear Johnson's anguish and then hear the speech he gives the next day or the day before full right. certainty yeah. and whatever and it's all all right It's great same with with McNamara i mean they're all confident and and from the beginning inheriting notes from the truman administration that are saying the same thing you know it is a big wtf i mean this is we could have called the film this you yeah know? so
0: well what do you like and i and i also like that the way you arced it, you know the the arc of the film ends up with the design and and the, the engagement wall. with the wall you know and that 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 you know i get choked up just now thinking about that like not unlike you know uh Uh, ground zero in new york that there's going to be resistance from people who say how can you even possibly begin to think of how to make a memorial right and that thing and that one guy who was like that to me it looked like nothing
1: a ditch a ditch of shame i believe yeah
2: and then he starts to cry about the end of the sentence that he's begun vehemently and certainly opposed to what the wall represented by the end of it he is broken down because it proves the effectiveness of it. And if you can escape the binary stuff that he's a prisoner of at the beginning of the sentence and get to the place where he is at the end of the sentence, then you have not just an opportunity to appreciate the wool, but you have an opportunity to have a conversation about Vietnam, which we don't have because we've either stuck our head in the sand like ostriches, we lost, we don't want to deal with it. It was too painful. I don't want to talk about it. Or it it set in motion such you know, opposing divisions between people, such polarization that you can't have a conversation about it without devolving into yelling almost from the beginning. So we're sort of saying, you know what, you can. You can have this conversation. In war particularly, more than one truth can obtain, and we can help you see that that's the case. We had no thumb on the scale. We had no political agenda or axe to grind or some subtle narrative thing that we're going to do. Obviously, we're going to bring who we are and try to learn what baggage we brought into it and learn pretty early on that we had to free ourselves of that baggage. But we just want to tell you what happened. And just... What happened is itself so mind-bogglingly complex, but also so compelling. And it reveals to us so much about human nature. We study war not just because of it's bad, as I said, but because it also reveals stuff about love yeah. and friendship and courage and, and, and fellowship and all sorts of stuff. And the people you met, I mean, it, there may not be like the Civil War. We didn't end slavery and didn't bring the country together or end fascism. And there's nothing redeeming about Vietnam, but in these individual stories, man, I've, it's in some ways cleaner than the Civil War and cleaner than World War II because you get right, because it is a tragedy, you get right to the heart of it and you get, I think we got valuable information for ourselves and how to live our lives from this film. And, and, and we hope by you know extension or osmosis or whatever it is that happens in, in, in film and art and whatever it is, with our audience,
0: my buddy uh, Jim Loftus, who w- worked in the government for thirty years, mm-hmm. yeah, he was with Kerry. He, you know, he did advance for several presidents, and he was with John Kerry uh, doing uh, work with him for like five or seven years. He retired from government, but when I met him in college you know, in 1981 or 82, you would think he had been to Vietnam. He was a Mm -hmm. freshman and he would not stop talking about it. He was obsessed with it. And I was like, I I got hold of this. And and he's like, oh God, he's up in New Hampshire where you are, right? Yeah. And, you know, he's just, he's retired out of the government. He's just sitting up there. And I'm like, you got to watch this. And he, he, I think he watched it straight. Like, I don't think he slept. And oh my he's my like, goodness. "Oh man, this is great!"
2: You know, like he was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't recommend that. I just want to say that uh, that it's, it, it's like taking the whole bottle of pills at once. Uh, there is, I mean, it's it's tough for us. I think the most we've ever squeezed it in was three days. Is that right? I think so. And and and, and that was tough for us. And we've seen it a gazillion times, and it still just rips us. I apart. know. I just told him to no. send it back to me because I got to watch it again. <laughs> oh my <laughs> I, I,
1: goodness! You, well, you know, what, you got one. Yeah. Okay. What you know? What we've found that's been so heartening is that it is really intense and especially young people have come and you know we've had screenings for a variety of reasons with interns and just people who have you know, friends of friends and that kind of thing and they come in and they say I think I'm gonna have a you know I was expecting a history lesson like high school history about the Vietnam War but I just had an experience and <laughs> you know that is the highest compliment we could possibly have because it's you know some kind of funny alchemy to make something out of this raw material that feels like you were there um, but we're hoping because of the way all these different points of views exist and people really sort of open their hearts to well, tell their you, stories, we get a chance for people to have a different kind of conversation about this period and all the divisions that Ken talked about earlier. You know, we've had people in our in our edit room come in and not just consultants who are, you know, a little bit out of a move, but people who live through it who really don't agree at all. Watch the film. Agree then, about what? You know, should we be there? you know was the, it just right, oh, right, i mean right. the basic questions of sure. the war people on the right and on the left people yeah. who protested and prisoner of war let's just say for example coming to a screening and after watching it they might not agree but they're having a really different kind of conversation having seen the film and that is you know the best news we can have because that's what we think is so missing right now from our public life. We're not having these kind of civil conversations. Discourse. Right. Civil so,
2: of course. And you know, I, something about this film, too, that I'd, we haven't really talked about that I think is a hugely important ingredient is the music. Yeah. You know, we have Got Trent, to pick Trent, good ones. Trent Reznor <laughs> and Atticus Ross composed oh, oh, unbelievable track that just mirrors this in the way they do with the hard metallic stuff that oh, creates yeah, anxiety. But, yeah, yeah. But, but just also resolving into something melodic and, and more emotional. And then Yo Yo Man, the Ocrado Ensemble in addition to 120 takes of the best music from one of the best periods if not the best period of mu- of popular music ever and so we've got Beatles and Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and Bob Dylan and you know yeah. Crosby, Stills yeah. and Nash and Simon and Garfunkel Creedence. And, and Creedence Clearwater and Miles Davis and you know But that Reznor stuff that you know that, But the Reznor stuff is like, is, like is the whole in it it's the pulse of the film, and it's just stunning. I don't know how they do it. And we we were here um, a few months ago with them, and they told us it was one of the most satisfying collaborations they'd had working on this stuff for us. We wanted to get into their garage yeah. and see how they did it. Yeah. But but we had felt that this was the most satisfying collaboration that we'd had, and there was something really exciting that that this subject had for Trent and Atticus had had sort of pushed the right buttons in the way it had pushed our buttons There's as well. There's
1: something, you know— what we did was show them raw footage. We yeah. didn't score to the film at all. So we yeah, showed them interviews, just uncut material, uh-huh. and then we talked about the moods that we hoped they would be able to evoke. So he's good at anxiety. Mood. He's good at moods, and more than one mood at the same time. I mean, that's what's uh-huh. so fascinating yeah. is that you know, the music is so complex, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, he's a, excitement yeah. And, and dread, like yeah. do, 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 do and and yet at the same time, it's resolving in the pit of your stomach with a kind of, you know, yeah, that kind his of wheelhouse. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and. and and Peter Coyote is an old radical
0: himself. So yeah. you know, you got him. <laughs> he learned
1: a lot, you know, well, because in reading, he, he kept on he had to really leave his baggage at the door too because, you know, he lived through this period in one way as an activist, but you know, seeing what was happening in Hanoi and what the North Vietnamese soldiers were saying and what was happening huh. in the White House and I mean, you know, he came away with a completely different understanding of the war. When
2: when when we yeah. were directing him how how to read it and we've used him and we love him and he's a a dear friend. Yeah, he does this great thing. He doesn't want to see it in advance, so he's yeah. reading cold. And often we're taking the first take, so sometimes those sentences are someone essentially in the moment carrying the words, inhabiting the words in the in the best sort of way. But as we would move on to the next narration block, yeah. he would read everything in between, and he was going jeez, I had no idea. And so what, I think that's what it was is that, (laughs) that, that for the open-minded still among us to be able to just check your, your weapons at the door, you know what I mean? And just sort of say, I am disarmed because I think I know, but I don't know anything. This was our experience going in. And it was the experience of our writer, Jeffrey Ward, who's an extraordinary writer I've worked with for 35 years. Uh And we just all had to sort of let it go and then go into this with a a different kind of mindset. Yeah, and I think that if like you know, if you can penetrate the the sort
0: of, you know, apathy or detachment or you know, what whatever it is that people or the just the youth uh, some people just not caring you know, like the, you do a real good job because right away you you know it's not a history lesson. Right. It's
1: hard not to care. No. I think yeah, it's hard not hard to, hard care, to care. And it's very engaging. Yeah. The biggest, immediately, the and, biggest yeah.
2: thing to to drop is certainty because I think this is what we do all the time, particularly today. We're always really certain. We're and always, denial and and deny yes, but that's a that's a, a, a flip side of certainty, which is you know we're all in our hardened silos of just the absolutely sure that we know what it is, and yeah. there's some incredible release that takes place when you let that go. And we had to do that necessarily to make a film, but We've watched our audiences. I mean, left, right, and center. As Lynn is saying, young and old. I mean, just credible testimony from a kid who, you know, in our an intern who was, you know, grew up with violent video games. And after he watched the Tet offensive, referring to the assassination of the North Vietnamese spy right on the streets, he said, "He's really dead," and he started to cry. And I thought, oh my God, if we cut through, if he's if he's killing and blowing up heads all day, you know, and then he comes and he's worried about Lim. As a real you, life human yeah, being, yeah, you know, you and the it. footage is pretty graphic. Deliver like, the goods. Then, exactly. Then, then, have you then been approached by video game companies? <laughs> no, no, oh, no, oh, and, would, and 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 we would never do it. I remember after the Civil War, we got approached. <laughs> no, it, and and I just said, uh, uh-uh, uh, because you'll you'll make it possible for the Confederacy to win, and that, and that, <laughs> not that that's gonna not, not going to be one of the options that I will
0: tolerate. Well, thank you so much, Alan uh, and Ken. That was, uh, I think, you did a masterpiece. It's great job,
2: and you know, and, and the book too is this coming out too. I got yes. this huge book. Yeah, terrific. It's, it's Jeff Ward being able to say okay you sons of bitches you cut this out of this episode oh, really? oh, good, for good. time yeah. I get to put it back in and then <laughs> add a little bit more so it's it's always a terrific treat to and then think. I think it's important for people to know that this is not a downer no no no, no. I, you know look there is a way I mean there's humor in this there's yeah. transcendence in here but it's also you could argue really this was a good thing the system worked sure. the people of the United States over time decided that this was not really in the best interest of the country and they elected people who changed it
0: yep and the in the wisdom the humility the you know the the sort of enlightenment the you you know all of it all the good human things Uh, and the bad human things are in there
1: yeah i mean you know we sometimes right exactly i mean over the course of making the film and spending time with this material was so dark Mm. and often really devastating for everybody who worked on looking at the images thinking about the losses that people suffered and the guilt they carry for who yeah. didn't make it, and right. the awful things that happened, just you know, was became at times really overwhelming, and we would sometimes say, you know, this is such a dark story. How are we going to get through it? But I think what carried us through, and I, we hope carries our audience through, is that it is this resilience that people who've gone through these things can still be here. They can tell you their story. They can make sense of it for themselves. And um, there's tremendous courage in that. Yeah. And, you know, humility and grace in yep. a way, like you said. And that isn't, it's not a happy ending by any means. Right. But there is some deeper meaning for all of us that that's what we're all hoping. It's, you know, um, in the beginning of the film, Max Cleland says uh, he's quoting um, from the Holocaust survivor Victor Frankl, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. The idea being to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in suffering. And I heard a corollary to that recently, which is Jung said, you have to make meaning out of suffering, which right. is even different than finding it's it. It's
2: active. It's not a passive right. thing. It's not waiting for that understanding to come. It's it's going out and seizing the bull. I mean, this see, is...
1: Right. And we see the people in the film do this over and over again.
2: And there, there is, like, I, I yeah.
1: do
0: feel that, you know, uh, along with all these things that... Whatever is open-ended, you, you, you know, in terms of how you feel or what how the discussions evolve, is that you do feel closure. Yes.
1: Okay. Well. <laughs> there you
0: go. <laughs> yeah. Which is,
2: which is good.
1: Right. It's given
0: really, all that information, it is. no, it's
2: really, it's really, really good. And I think a part the message finally at the end is is hopeful. It's it's you know South Africa had one of the worst passages of time and they did a thing called Truth and Reconciliation and yeah. I think that what the film is attempting to do is suggest as close as what we can by the variety of the experiences what the truth of the situation was and then it leaves open the possibility of reconciliation
0: yeah well we need it right now amen indeed. brother <laughs> thank you so <laughs> exactly. much you guys Thank, thank you. you. watch that thing I'll tell you, yeah, what a great conversation with those two, and and what the documentary is like. I got I'm gonna have to start it over, just to process it all. Uh, it's definitely worth it because there there's just so many things that I certainly didn't know. Maybe some of you are more obsessed than I am, like my friend Jim, and up in New Hampshire now. <laughs> so he's hunkered down up there in New Hampshire, but he was obsessed with it, and he, you know, to, for those of you who who really knew a lot about it, you're going to know more. And for those of you who feel a little light in terms of how much you do know, you're going to know more. For those of you who just knew the ideas of it or reacted to it the way you were supposed to react as somebody who was against that, uh, this is going to be an eye-opener. All right, so thank you. What am I doing? It's the end of the show. Do you, Am I going to play guitar? I, you know, it's weird. When I play this sort of raunchy, shitty, dirty guitar, uh, people react to it. I guess there's no uh, uh, allusions to doing something different. I'll do it. I'll do it.